Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello! I'm sorry to say no Ed this week. The plan had been to talk to him live from Doncaster, where of course he is campaigning as the Labour Party candidate in this election. But as you will have seen in the news, that that part of the country has been severely affected by flooding. It's it's just terrible. People's lives have been turned upside down. It's Ed's constituency. And like everyone else in that community, he is just, you know, mucking in and doing what he can to help. So he's not around to be on the podcast this week. Uh, if, If you follow him on Twitter, you will have seen that he's been sharing useful information and, and sharing details of what local people are doing to help. But there's also something that maybe you can help with as a reason to be cheerful listener. And it's this social enterprise called Reread. And the work they do is brilliant. They collect and give free books to schools. But because of this flooding, thousands of books have been destroyed. And these are books that they were planning to distribute this Christmas. And they're asking for help to raise money to keep going. They've set up a GoFundMe campaign. And it would be fantastic if you could just bunger a couple of quid their way or whatever you can afford. I'm sure they would appreciate it enormously. Uh, The web address is gofundme.com stroke reread dash flood. I'll also put that in the episode notes. I am slightly worried that everyone will have just turned off as soon as they realise that Ed isn't here. But on the off chance that you are still listening, it's going to be a good episode this week. We're talking about TV election debates. Unlike many countries, the UK didn't hold election debates until relatively recently. There were a number of attempts to introduce them between the 60s and 2010s. They were repeatedly rejected. And we held our first election debates here in 2010. Uh, We've had them in every general election since. They have millions of viewers. Research suggests that they do help voters understand the issues and decide who to vote for. But each campaign has seen controversy about the format of the debates, who should take part, most recently about whether the Lib Dem leader, Joe Swinson, should be included in them. Whereas TV debates, they've been part of every US presidential election since the mid-70s. And we're going to be talking to TV debate expert Diana Carlin about why debates have become a central feature of US politics and why she thinks they're good for democracy. Then we'll be speaking to Graham Fox from Canada. They've also had TV debates for decades, but they recently set up an independent commission to organise them. And we're going to be asking him about the impact that had on the Canadian election last month. And then Nick Anstead from the London School of Economics, he's going to talk to us about what we can learn from these examples and how else debates can be improved in the UK. And then, once we're done with all of that, something special for election season, we are inviting back some of our favourite comedians to talk about their favourite moments in the week's campaigning. And this week, you may know him from episode 78 of Reasons to be Cheerful, it is the wonderful Pierre Novelli. You're listening to Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. 
first up, we are going to get an overview of the history of televised leaders' debates here in the UK. They have only featured in recent elections. And to explain why that is and where we go from here, we have Nick Anstead, who is an associate professor in the Department of Media and Communications at the London School of Economics. Hello. Hello. Now, these televised leaders' debates, they're a pretty recent phenomenon for us. We've only had them since 2010. But of course, they have existed in other countries around the world. Uh, for a long time, perhaps most famously in America during their presidential campaigns. The the first debate was broadcast in 1960. How did it come to pass that we've ended up now having these as part of our election campaigns? Were the public clamouring for this? What, what is the history? Yes, yeah, so we had our first televised debate in uh, 2010 in the UK. Um, people may remember, it seems a very long time ago, but we had this thing called Clegmania. Yes, uh, which was I when- agree with Nick. Indeed, people did agree with Nick uh, for a short while, anyway, and um, and and this was revolutionary when it happened. And as you correctly say, that's a whole fifty years after the United States had their first debates. Now, the reason it took so long is is obviously to have debates, you have to get agreement from the candidates, the, the party leaders. And twenty ten was an unusual moment because it certainly at that time suited the two largest parties to have a debate. So uh, Cameron was leading the Conservative Party and they were seemed fairly confident of winning, but they weren't quite sure they were going to get a majority. Uh, and they felt that Cameron as a media performer could, could win a debate and do very well in a debate. Um, and of course, the Labour Party led by Gordon Brown uh, were behind in the polls. So they felt a debate could shake things up and could work to their advantage. And so you had this unusual set of circumstances where both major parties were in favour of having a debate. And if you look back at the previous history of debates and debates about debates, which had happened for a long time, uh, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, there was discussion of debate, but always there was one party that had a reason not to do it and, and essentially would act as a veto player so the debates wouldn't happen. And what were those reasons? I know something you often hear said is that we don't live in a presidential system, so so much weight shouldn't be put on whether a leader performs well in a debate. But were there the same kind of concerns about whether a politician was media savvy and charismatic? You know, what were the kind of reasons you're talking about? I think really the main reason is that if you are in front, in the polls, you probably don't want to do something that potentially destabilises the campaign or can introduce this unknown factor into the campaign. So that might be the actual reason, the numbers and the the risk aversion. But your question also introduces the rhetorical reason, uh, which is very often politicians, I think Margaret Thatcher said this as, well, we're not a presidential democracy, we're a parliamentary democracy and debates are an anathema uh, to us. Um, The problem with this argument is it's completely wrong. It neglects the fact that plenty of parliamentary democracies around the world, Canada, uh, West Germany, Germany, Australia have a long tradition of having televised election debates. I just want to talk a little bit about why they're positive. Is it voter engagement? Is it good for democracy? Uh, what What are the positives about these TV debates? The positive and the negative might actually be in some ways the same thing, but which is they provide a centre point for the campaign. They point of moment of focus uh, where people can, and, and we do know certainly that they they can get quite high viewing. Certainly in 2010, they did get high viewing. They provide a moment of focus where these issues are aired and they are discussed. Now, of course, the counter argument is that, and and certainly this argument was made in 2010, is that they kind of sucked all the life out of the campaign outside of debates. The campaign became about the debates and the debates 
only. My personal view is we've actually got ourselves in a bit of a mess in this country at the moment. So if you look in 2010, the way the debates took place was you had a consortium of broadcasters and uh, they negotiated as a group, uh, Sky, ITV and the BBC. And that's why you had three debates across the three channels. So each channel would lead on one of the debates. Um, The situation we've now got ourselves into is it seems that the broadcasters are negotiating individually. So how does that then not become a race to the bottom about what will let them get away with? Well, I think that's exactly right, because the possibility of politicians playing the broadcasters off against each other, I think, is much, much greater in that scenario. And and we, we sort of know this is happening because it was very interesting. So ITV obviously announced their debate last week, which is going to be a, a two-way debate uh, between uh, Boris Johnson and Jeremy Corbyn. And a couple of days later, Sky issued a press release saying they were offering a, a three-way debate with uh, Johnson, Corbyn and Joe Swinson as well. Sky actually then said, well, we wanted to do a two-way debate, but since there's already one of those, we're going to change our proposal to this three-way. Mm. So, so, so it was interesting that basically that their plan had been kind of undermined by their rival broadcasters, so they sort of thought, had to think about doing something different. But ultimately, the, the point I made right at the beginning of this conversation s- stays true, which is that politicians will act in self-interest. They will try to agree the format that suits them best and suits what they're trying to achieve best and is there any groundswell of support around the idea of some kind of body or electoral organization that decides what these debates are when they are how many of them there are what format they take who gets to take part i don't know about a groundswell i mean there are certainly parallels so um canada in its last election for the first time actually had an organization that did this an independent debate commission I think this is a very good way to go. And I think well, Canada's long had, I think, very good practices in this area, even before the instigation of this commission. Because I think one of the problems, and I think it would be interesting to talk to some of the broadcasters about this, but one of the problems is not dealing with the specifics of the situation you're faced by, but actually having hypothetical rules that you can apply election cycle to election cycle. So, so, um, ITV, for example, have justified their Corbyn-Johnson debate on the grounds of saying, well, these are the two people who could become prime minister. And, and why why is that not right? Um, well, I think it certainly doesn't reflect the voting decisions that many people face in different constituencies across the country. That's the first thing to say. But the other question I would ask isn't so much whether that test is appropriate or inappropriate, a leader, a, a potential prime minister test. Um, we may have different opinions on whether that's appropriate or inappropriate. But the question is, what actually is the test you're applying? So if, for example, in the next two weeks, there was a Lib Dem surge in the polls, what number would Swinson have to get up to to be invited to that debate as a potential prime minister? And the Canadian example is really great because they have always had these numbers. So they've got a formula for... They have a formula where they say, this is the criteria for inclusion in the debate. And they apply it across elections. The last thing I wanted to ask you is, we have a thing on the podcast called the Jeffocracy, which is a utopia with me installed as a benevolent supreme leader. Now, if I was to appoint you head of the commission for televised debates what is the first thing you would do on day one well first of all it would be rules for inclusion clear transparent running across election cycles so you don't have ad hoc negotiations taking place to suit the whims of politicians or broadcasters in any given election moment and i think it would also be to try and this is the academic saying this, but it would to try to be to gather slightly more evidence about what actually makes a good 
debate. So, uh, you know, my instinct, it's towards saying, well, we do have now a multi-party system. We have um, separate party systems in different parts of the country, even in Scotland and Wales particularly. Um, and and obviously I, I would favour pluralism, but there may, for example, be effects of that pluralism in terms of decreasing educative effects, for example. Um, but we don't really know. So it would be interesting to think about what the actual trade-offs are between different debate formats and then how we could go about making an informed decision as to which one served our democratic discourse best. Nick, that is going to be a busy day one yeah. in your role. Uh, thank you so much for talking to us, Nick Anstead. Now, when we think about televised debates, one of the first thing that springs to mind for many people is the presidential debates in the United States. And we're going to talk now to Diana Carlin, who is Emeritus Professor of Communication at St. Louis University. Uh, Diana is in Kansas. Kansas, can you hear me? This is London Calling. I can hear you. Yes, Jeff. Good morning. Thank you for coming on and, and talking to us. Now, your area of research has been the TV debates in the United States and around the world for many decades. And I wondered if we could start by asking you why election debates are, in your opinion, good for the democratic process? Well, I think there are a lot of reasons why they are. And, and one of them is that it's an opportunity for the public to engage with the candidates in ways that they can't in any other form of political campaign communication. And the reason I say that is that um, we, especially now in the modern age with all of the uh, social media feedback systems, but also with things such as town halls, the citizens actually get to ask questions. So they are going one-on-one -on -one with the candidates. But I think the most important reason is that it's the only opportunity that you see them side by side where the agenda is not basically guided by the candidates and they have to respond to one another directly. Is there anything in the idea that it perhaps oversimplifies things and if you are a candidate who can stand there and deliver a zinger or the perfect soundbite that can give you an advantage on on something which actually requires a bit more complex scrutiny well that is that is one of the criticisms there's not a lot of time to explain any of this but it is much longer than a 30 second advertisement or a tweet uh, or, you know, a campaign speech that doesn't necessarily take into consideration um, what the other candidate is saying in a direct way. But I do think that with the way that the debates have evolved over the years, especially the last two or three cycles in the U.S., where there is more time given to a single topic, for instance, now the formats in, in the U.S., are that there are only six topics in a debate and they each get at least 15 minutes. There can be some substantive discussion in that 15 minutes, especially when you are directly comparing the two candidates and their responses. Can you talk to us a bit about the history of debates in the US? So you've had them for around 50 years. Um, can you tell the story about how the, the first debate came to be? So we've had the tradition, 1960 was the, very, was the first general election televised debates, but we did have uh, primary debates in 56 and 60. And then in 1960, about 90% of the homes in this country had a television and uh, TV news was beginning to be a big deal. So this was an opportunity for the networks to really showcase what this new medium would do. And you also had an open seat 
and you had two individuals who really wanted to debate. Nixon had been a college debater. It was known to be very eloquent. Uh, John Kennedy was also one who, even though he hadn't been a debater, he was being coached by a very good one. So they wanted the debates because this was a very important election at a very crucial time. And that's how they came about. But we went for 16 years without debates. So we didn't have them return again until 1976. Uh And part of the reason for that is we have something called the Equal Time Clause of a a 1930s uh, Federal Communication Act that says that if a network gives candidates free airtime, they have to give everyone running for that office or everyone involved in a particular issue equal time. So the only way the Kennedy-Nixon debates happened was that Congress suspended the equal time provision in order for them to only have two people. And and did the general public love this format from the off from 1960? Were people asking for more of these debates in those uh, presidential elections between then and 1976 when Congress hadn't suspended these broadcasting minute rules? Yeah, the public loved the debates. I think they estimated close to 100 million people watched either all or part of the debates, one or more. There were four of them. But the candidates were the ones who were basically able to uh, stop this from happening again. And so it wasn't until 76 when uh, there was a decision that basically made it possible for them to have the debates without going to Congress. And that was what opened the door to the debates. We don't have a law requiring them to debate, but because the public wants the debates and expects the debates, they've pretty well been uh, institutionalized uh, just de facto. Right. So there's no kind of government commission or it's, it's not part of the election process. It's just so well established that the, the, right. you know, it would, it would be a terrible thing for a candidate not to take part in these debates. Well, in fact, if a candidate stalls and tries to not debate, they suffer. In 1992, George H.W. Bush did not want to debate. They stalled the negotiations over the debates. There are negotiations, and that's been a part of the debate since the very beginning in the 19th century, even with uh, Lincoln and Douglas and their famous Senate debates. But he stalled the negotiations. And someone uh, started following George H.W. Bush around in a chicken suit and had a sign that said, Chicken George won't debate. People believe that this is a job interview and that they owe it to the public to show up for the interview. And so when Bush then was getting all this negative press and negative polling, then they went back to the negotiating table and they got the debate started. I mean, you've you've uh, advised countries around the world on televised debates. Do you think the format lends itself better to a system where it's kind of a two horse race, or do you think um, in in a system where there are lots of smaller parties, not necessarily a first past the post system, they, they can work equally as well? Uh, yes, in in several of the countries that I've worked in, well, except for the U.S., everyone else basically has multi-party parliamentary systems, and and they can work well. Uh, there are a lot of different formats you can use. I have helped organize debates that had six candidates, and we were effectively able to get all of those candidates to have an equal amount of time and to answer all the questions. Uh, I've seen strategies several years ago in the Canadian. Uh, leaders debate, they had three candidates 
and they had questions to all three, and then they had opportunities where they paired them up one-on-one and actually allowed them to ask one another questions, so they each had an opportunity to interact with the other two. The format does matter. How you structure the debate really makes a difference in how much the public's going to learn, how much they actually clash with one another, and, and you can really compare their positions. What makes a good format? They have to be fair. In other words, all the candidates need to have equal time. Uh, They all need to answer the same question or at least respond to something on the same issue. Uh, There needs to be sufficient time to really compare the two candidates, which means you don't have 20 questions in a debate where they get a minute each. You you do these like 15-minute blocks or 10-minute blocks or whatever. The main thing I think that makes a debate a good debate is that it's on the the issues that the public really wants to hear about. And I've had an opportunity to interview several of the the individuals in the U.S. who have been the uh, moderators or panelists. And if they do it correctly, they have a lot of research done on polling data, on, you know, what people are writing into uh, letters to the editor, any kinds of public response to, to what's happening to the election. And they really try to gear their questions to those issues. And and what about the idea that these moderators shouldn't necessarily be journalists, the sort of star news anchor faces of the various networks, but judges or historians? This is one of the questions that people really say is we would like to see some experts. So if, you know, the topic for that particular debate is foreign policy, we would like to see a moderator who comes out of a foreign policy think tank who really can probe as opposed to a journalist who's getting, you know, the input from whatever researchers they have. I think it's a good idea. I wanted to ask you about the negotiations that uh, politicians and political parties are able to do before these debates. Ideally, how much input should they be allowed to have? Well, ideally, they should have some because you have to have a sense of transparency and, and they have to be considered fair. The way that it's done at the general election level, the Commission on Presidential Debate selects the sites, uh, they select the moderators, and they basically present that to the candidates. But then the candidates usually have their own negotiations. And in 2004, they had a 26-page agreement that the two candidates' teams came up with. Some of them are silly things. Uh, For instance, in 1988, Michael Dukakis was probably a foot shorter than George H.W. Bush. And the Dukakis team wanted the shots, the long shots, to, to look like they were the same height. So they put a pitcher's mound underneath the carpet for his podium so that when you did the long shot, they were of an equal height. Pretty ridiculous. So one of the yeah, one of the agreements is that no one can do anything to elevate a candidate. That was in one of the agreements. Uh, yeah, in two in two thousand and four, they were convinced that John Kerry would go overtime all the time, and and overtime is something that really upsets these candidates because they are pretty short answers. So they wanted these stoplights put on the front of the microphone. You know, so that as soon as it turned red, everybody would know if that person was going overtime. Interestingly, the only person who went overtime in most of those debates very much was George W. Bush, not John Kerry. Right. So, so those are the kinds of silly things that get in there. But um, you know, they they need to make sure they're fair. So that they need to be a part of the negotiations. 
Uh, I w- wanted to just sort of finish by asking you about what you've learned about the effectiveness of TV debates. What 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 the evidence is that they make a difference, or or maybe the empirical evidence on what difference they make. Well, there you know the empirical evidence is looking at what happens with polling data, and where you really will see movement is with the undecided voters or with the soft vote. In um, 1980, Ronald Reagan's poll numbers went up dramatically and John Anderson's went down to the point he went out of the debates and it, it positioned Reagan well for the single debate he had with Carter and Carter didn't perform well. In 1976, Gerald Ford had a major gaffe that uh, then got worse as the media reported on it and his polling numbers started going down. The thing about the debates is that they aren't just a single event. What my research has shown is that they're the focal point. If something's been happening on the campaign trail, they become a place to really talk about it. But I think one of the bigger impacts is not one that is as tangible as polling numbers. It's what you asked me about at the very beginning, that they're good for democracy. People believe that those candidates need to be up there doing the job interview. And the more you have citizen participation, such as town halls or submitting questions that are then read on air, you begin to have people feel that they have some, you know, control, that they have some role in this whole process. And I think that's the most important thing. Diana, thank you very much. And we're going to head what I would guess is a couple of thousand kilometres north of Kansas now to Montreal. Canada's an interesting one because their parliamentary system is not dissimilar to ours and they have had issues around these televised debates in elections. And to talk to us about that and what we can learn, we have Graham Fox, who is president of the Institute for Research on Public Policy in Canada. Hello. Hello. Talk to me about the history of TV debates in Canada, uh, these televised leaders' debates. How long have they been around? Sure. Uh, So uh, Canadian voters have had the opportunity to watch their leaders' Uh, exchange in televised leaders' debates almost uninterrupted uh, since the general election of 1968. I think it's important to uh, think about as well that until two elections ago, until uh, 2015, those debates were organized by a consortium of broadcast media who negotiated directly with political parties to determine the format and the dates and other formalities to hold these debates. And the general tradition has been to hold one debate in each of Canada's official languages, uh, French and English. And what went wrong then? Things started to go wrong long before uh, 2015. To begin with, uh, we saw a fragmentation of the Canadian party system uh, starting in the early 1990s, where we were, quite like the UK, used to uh, having two or three parties uh, with a reasonable chance to elect a significant number of members of parliament uh, to the Canadian House. Starting with the 1993 election, uh, we completely went from a a three-party system uh, to one that had at least five and on occasion six political parties vying for election. Uh, And so having to accommodate that number of people with a reasonable chance to have members elected to the Canadian Commons uh, made format questions very difficult. So that's number one. Number two, The fragmentation of the media environment meant that while it made sense for a long time to turn almost exclusively to broadcast media uh, to hold these debates, 
the more you could have video feeds on a newspaper website and other such things, why would you limit it to traditional cable television became an increasing question. And our political parties were communicating more and more directly with their voters. Uh, And so the notion that you needed these debates as a necessary intermediary became became less obvious to a lot of campaign tacticians. Uh, and so that all comes to a head in 2015 uh, when negotiations between the media consortium and political parties breaks down uh, and the prime minister at the time, uh, Stephen Harper, uh, decides that he will not take part in consortium debates. And I think in the eyes of a lot of voters, it really brought into highlight how these things were negotiated and put on and a growing dissatisfaction with the fact that all of these negotiations uh, were happening behind closed doors and negotiated by individuals uh, that the public really didn't know. So this independent commission was established, the Leaders' Debates Commission, how did that come about? Was that generally the public saw what went on in 2015 and, and became privy to these negotiations? And then there, there, were, there was campaigning, was it media pressure? What led to this commission being established? I, I think it, it was a quite a clever reaction to what came to be known in Canada as the debate about the debates where even negotiations and would the, would Prime Minister Harper take part in the debate, that became part of the election story in 2015. And when uh, Justin Trudeau was elected Prime Minister, uh, moving from third party to first for the first time in Canadian history, I think quite cleverly uh, decided to take advantage of that. And so it was established uh, party policy and therefore government policy uh, that we would move away from that backroom negotiation model uh, to hopefully uh, a more public, more open, more transparent model uh, to get to how do we structure and format these debates? And and what has that commission done to structure and format these debates then? So, you know, you, you mentioned that you went from having a, a system where there were perhaps three parties to up to six parties. Is it still the case that really only two or three of those candidates stand a chance of becoming Prime Minister was the negotiation uh, around that? Yes, uh, and, and, and that is still very much true, uh, that we have two, two certainly uh, and possibly a third party leader with a reasonable chance to become Prime Minister. But the decision was made early on in the establishment of this commission uh, that the focus really ought to be a meaningful or reasonable chance to elect members to the House of Commons, uh, which right away expands the list of uh, legitimate contenders or legitimate participants uh, in a leader's debate to at least five, and in our case, six. But for the first time, uh, it was made plain on the commission's website the criteria that political parties and party leaders had to meet in order to be able to, to be considered for participation. And can you talk to me about what those criteria are? So I'm just thinking of here in the UK, for example, we can have a party that is doing very well in the opinion polls, but end up with only one seat in Parliament. We can have a situation where you can have a party with quite a lot of seats in Parliament, like the SNP, but they are only electable by a a relatively small section of the electorate because they're a regional party. Is, Is all that stuff factored in? To these criteria? 
It, it is, and we struggle with uh, very similar dynamics in our own parliament. It was established for the commission that a or a party whose leader could participate uh, in the campaign had to meet two of three of the following criteria. Number one, the party had to be represented uh, in the House of Commons at dissolution by at least one MP who had been elected under that party's banner. Number two, the party has to commit to run candidates in 90% of constituencies, of which we have 338. And then the third criterion, which uh, is a little bit uh, a little bit more subjective, is if the party had existed at the previous election, had to meet the 4% threshold in popular vote. But in the case of a new party, which was a situation that we faced uh, in 2019, had to have a legitimate chance to elect some of its members to the House. And, and broadly speaking, how did it go the, the first time this was tested in this year's election? So I'd say the answer is very different if you consider the French debate or versus the English debate, because the Commission, not necessarily having the in-house technical expertise uh, to broadcast the debate, uh, sought submissions from organizations across uh, across the country who wanted to put on either the French debate or the English debate. And as it turns out, in both cases, it was some form of a consortium of media organizations, not exclusively broadcast. And on the French side, there seemed to have been deeper collaboration among the media partners. Uh, there were fewer of them uh, to start with and more focus on the effectiveness of the format for party leaders and more discipline on imposing that format on party leaders. Whereas on the English side, there were many partners, uh, each of whom had their own representative as someone to ask questions uh, to our party leaders, which made for a much more confused process. And so in terms of what voters got, you got more meaningful exchange in French. You uh, actually got more pointed answers in terms of what was actually in the political programs of parties. Whereas in English, there was more talking over each other, more confusion. But I think really the challenges that remain for the commission have more to do with specific format decisions than they have to do with the mandate of the commission itself. And so I expect that perhaps with some tweaks and some learnings that the commission will be back uh, at the next general election, uh, largely intact. And we have a thing on the podcast just finally called the Jeffocracy, which is a it's some kind of utopia in which I'm a benevolent dictator, but it is a very also simultaneously a very well functioning democracy. Otherwise, if if I was to appoint you czar for televised debates, what is the first thing you would do uh, on day one here in the UK? I would absolutely have uh, a a very disciplined reflection on format, uh, which in the Canadian experience can make or break a debate experience for voters. Voters are looking for information and they're looking for an opportunity to hear directly from leaders unfiltered on what it is that they propose to do for them. And so a disciplined examination of format based on that, I think is the critical make or break decision for any commissioner in any country. Graham, thank you very much. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me.
Well, that was a whistle-stop tour of televised election debates here in the UK and in the US and, and Canada. And one thing that has struck me having this conversation is that when you think of the United States, you can think of it as a bit of a, no pun intended here, a bit of a Wild West when it comes to elections. Um, there aren't the same limits on campaign spending and there are sort of endless attack ads on TV and radio. And it is interesting to me that these set-piece presidential debates, which are watched by tens of millions of people and and have proven to be important to the outcome of presidential elections. These things are run by a bipartisan commission. And it makes me think that perhaps now that the genie is out of the bottle over there here, now now that we have debates on the TV in in the run-up to elections, it would be good to have something similar regulating what parties need to adhere to instead of just letting them negotiate with broadcasters and make up the rules as they go along. And um, I did go into this week's episode a little bit sceptical. I think in the past I've perhaps thought about these types of debates as being a bit of a symptom of the modern age and being like uh, an X factor for politics. But I have come round to the way of thinking that they can be a really good thing for engagement in democracy. I think there are huge benefits in having candidates given the same opportunities to speak, but also uh, being put under the same restrictions. You're getting it in an unfiltered, unedited way, especially in the modern age where on social media, uh, what you see are political parties chopping up things, taking them out of context, maybe making their opponents look like they said something or reacted to something in a way that they didn't. And there's really something to be said, I think, uh, for, for this format when it is done well. And if you would like to read more about the uh, background on this week's episode, all our research is up on our website, cheerfulpodcast.com. Reasons to be cheerful, a podcast about ideas with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This first one comes from Emily Bird on the subject of universal jobs guarantee and equality. She says, I love the idea of a decentralised universal jobs guarantee. This is what we talked about last week, um, as it could do great things for tackling ingrained social inequalities. But we are missing something big here. If we don't address the childcare affordability crisis through government subsidy, won't the universal job guarantee accentuate gender inequality? Maybe the Jeffocracy should implement the jobs guarantee alongside the universal childcare you talked about in the previous excellent podcast. If you go for this model, you can sign me up. Well, Emily will be signing you up. The the Jeffocracy will be implementing every idea we've ever talked about on this podcast within the first 100 days. This next one comes from Benjamin Chadwick, who says, Hi, Jeff and Ed. People always say Ed and Jeff, but I think Jeff should get to go first from time to time. I agree, and especially since Ed is in Doncaster North campaigning and he's not here to disagree, then this week should be one of those weeks. 
Benjamin says, I just caught up with your latest episode on the frequent fly attacks. I like the idea, but still have questions about the feasibility of it. It seems it would require quite a lot of bureaucracy to set up, and I wonder how it would be enforced for flights that don't start or end in the UK. Well, I'm imagining it wouldn't because that's the situation with aviation tax at the moment, isn't it? It's different in different countries. But you would have thought that like-minded countries would try and coordinate these things and go for a similar approach. I don't know if that's uh, wishful thinking on my part. Benjamin continues on the broader subject of reducing flying. You might be interested in the proposals made in the Netherlands to ban flights between Amsterdam and Brussels. It makes little sense to run flights over such a short distance where the train is as quick and a lot more convenient. There are similar journeys within the UK and beyond between London and cities like Manchester, Newcastle, Paris and Brussels. Routes like these are often used as connecting flights for long haul, but there's no reason in principle why airlines can't code share with rail. This is something Air France does with the TGV, for example. I don't know what percentage flights make up of the total, uh, but this seems like a relatively easy place to start. That's a good idea. I mean, it seems like the nightmare would be getting the privatised British rail companies to talk to the uh, to the private airlines. But, you know, let, let's not let that be an insurmountable obstacle. Uh, all the best, Benjamin Chadwick. And this comes from Joe. Uh, Joe Polydorus, who says, first of all, uh, I wanted to say I started listening to your podcast when I was living out in Australia and quite sad about coming home. But you guys have made me realise perhaps it's not all bad. That's a lovely thing to read. Thank you, Joe. Joe continues, I loved your recent podcast about frequent flying. I fully admit that it's a huge problem. And over the uh, years, I've been trying to change how I travel. However, as you mentioned, with us being an island, it's sometimes impossible to leave the island without flying. And perhaps I'm being a little bit selfish with this, as it's my own lived experience, but I am on a low income, less than 20 grand a year. I work very hard to save everything uh, I earn so I can uh, travel purely so I can travel. And I know this is very much a reality for many people my age. We are also perhaps the most aware of our everyday impacts on the environment. Many of us cut out meat and dairy. We've severely reduced our plastic use and household waste. We walk and cycle a lot more in our day-to-day lives. We avoid switching the heating on and chuck on an extra jumper, just to name a few. My worry is that this will seriously impact our lives of those people like me, the ones who live very boring lives day-to-day and are frequent travels are all we look forward to what do you boys think about this well you know ed isn't here uh yeah i mean the 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 trouble is from the statistics we heard in that episode joe you're not a typical frequent flyer it tends to be you know extremely wealthy people who are taking the the majority of multiple flights in a year and I guess a, a progressive tax would need to be punitive enough to be a deterrent to, to those people. But uh, I don't know. The other thing I was thinking about is the way that Ed always describes what is needed to tackle the climate emergency as like a wartime effort. And, you know, those people in wartime, they gave up their nylon and they, uh, they had to exist on spam. So, you know, maybe... Maybe people who enjoy travelling like you and me will have to, you know, take a few more train trips on our mini breaks. But, you know, you do raise an interesting point. Let us know what you think. Get in touch through the website. 
email us reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com follow us on twitter at cheerful podcast or search for our facebook page reasons to be cheerful podcast all right throughout the election we're going to be joined by a different comedian every week i wondered if it was going to be reasons to be cheerful about that week's election campaign but i'm not not sure cheerful will quite be the right words so we'll we'll go with highlights um episodes of no i don't know but the the first one we welcome back and i'm delighted to see him again it's pierre novelli hello hello hi hi um pierre let me ask you a question. Are you still on a high after South Africa's win at the Rugby World Cup? <laughs> um, so you, you're really gloating about this on social media. Yes, I think I'm on a high, but I'm really not a sports guy. But the Springboks are, are almost a political entity in themselves, especially after 1995. You know, they, yeah. they, they, Go watch the movie Invictus for a crude summary of why. So I just th- like I think the country, South Africa in particular at the moment, needs it so much. Also, it was more about the fact that it's Sio Khaleesi, the first black captain. Right. And the fact that uh, rugby and the Springboks in general in South Africa is still in some quarters seen as a white Afrikaans sport. And you, it's much less common these days, but you used to be able to find very easily a lot of black South Africans who will support New Zealand against the Springboks. Right. For that reason. So it's a very like community dividing thing or was. And this is, this is the first time that has changed then. Uh, it's, it's been changing for a while. So like the, it, there's been like black supporters clubs formed and, uh, people have been more educated, including myself, about the fact that there were black like township, you know, slum rugby teams, even in the 1940s. Wow. Because it's so much harder to play in terms of equipment. I mean, not at cricket level, but still. So, uh, in fact, there's a black springbok whose grandfather played rugby in the 40s and stuff. So he was saying, people ignore that it's my heritage too, etc. Right, right. And so the fact that you can have this guy, Sio Khaleesi, who's not only a, a black guy, a black South African, but also from a slum background, a full, you know, full ride scholarship case through Gray's College holding a, a trophy made of solid gold uh, is just huge. It yeah. couldn't be bigger. Like, that's the reason why it was big when Mandela wore the Springboks jersey. Right. Because the jersey had become a white supremacist symbol as well. So it was very heavily associated with white Afrikanerdom. So for him to wear it at all was huge. Never mind for him to wear it at the World Cup in 1995 where they won. So it's like all. I'm, I'm getting a lot of context here. Yeah. Everything is making a lot more sense so, to me, which rarely happens <laughs> with anything to do with, well, anything full stop, but especially sport, really, with me. And I, as I say, I'm not a sports person. My angle on this is almost entirely through the politics. So the other thing we've been spectating is, is the election this week, week one. Yes. Uh, we're recording this on, on Thursday, so who knows what will have happened by the time the podcast is released on Monday. Do you enjoy an election campaign? I, I do. I'd say this is my sport because I, I know all the characters and I love data. Right. I love polls. Right. Show me the polls, <laughs> even though they're, they're not as reliable as we thought. But we'll, well see. I mean, has your faith in polling been shaken? Because we used to have these people like, I suppose, the American Nate Silver, who yeah. for a while became the hipster John Curtis. Yes. And, and now he, people seem to have completely turned on him. I think, uh, like so many people, he came a cropper of a uh, sort of, county level politics didn't he yeah in his head like uh, oh like blah blah county in in new york state is the same as shropshire and it's not shropshire is like a single constituent part of one of the smallest counties in your least populous state (laughs) yes it could not be more volatile yeah yeah if so and so the local councillor is a notorious penis at the christmas light switching on ceremony 
that's enough. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Just uh, that won't appear on a computer model. So what have you enjoyed this week then? I've enjoyed how many people are just quitting. You know, just just not standing. They're what just- I haven't got a clear sense of is how common this is in the run-up to election, how many MPs do just stand down, or because it feels like everything is on fire and it's only going to get worse if people are just thinking, I- I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to retrain. Yeah, I'm just going, fuck this. Yes, yeah. Because it's, it, it's 25 at least for the Labour and the Tories now. So each have lost 25 people, mm. which is... That's a lot of people to it just seem, It leave. does seem like a lot of people, doesn't it? The yeah. Lib Dems have lost like two or something. Or, yeah. or, or, and then it's all over the place. I mean, but the fact that they look at the election and they look at the, the what what they'll have to do even if they win, which go, absolutely <laughs> not. And there's this sense that both of the main contenders are being led by people who half their own guys hate. You know, it couldn't be a better indication of what a bad election it's going to be. Well, this this is interesting, isn't it? The the perception that the public can often have about what this election will resolve with regards to Brexit specifically Mm. compared to what is actually going to happen once once some form of withdrawal agreement goes through, if that's what happens, then what happens next? It really is you ain't seen nothing yet. (laughs) It's like um, Saw or something where you sort of go, you have merely entered another chamber of the (laughs) enormous torture device. (laughs) You thought I would let you go and that's just that's what brexit is and uh, maybe they quit as well because uh, this would make me want to quit they did that survey saying hang on to the public you know do you think that the job of your mp is you've elected them because they trust you to represent your will as best they can and to interpret things like in in a a lot of the agency is with them which is the correct response because it's a parliamentary democracy that's what's supposed to be happening or are they just supposed to do whatever the majority of you say all the time like a sort of robot with no initiative and something like 84% of people said the latter. Like, no, no, robot. Personal opinion robot, please. What, what do you think that says about people? <laughs> I think it says that uh, successive governments have made an enormous mistake completely failing to educate the public on how they work, how the government works. Because it's, it's really hard to learn. Yeah. Because it's anachronistic, complex gibberish. <laughs> but it's also not compulsory to learn ever. And there's a general sense that we'd rather you didn't find out how we do this because it's stupid. And then we'd have to fiddle with it. But it's like a giant delicate structure that if we fiddle with it too much, God knows what could happen. As ever, if you pull at the threads of anything, it all unravels very quickly. Yeah. The th- the thing that I don't understand about this idea that your MP should just there be, be there to enact whatever you want. Yeah. Like, I don't know what I want. I haven't read the research by and large. <laughs> yes. I haven't read the reports. I don't understand the uh, conflicting arguments yeah. and things. I want somebody else to do that for me. Yes. And then make a decision. Exactly. And 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 if that was the case, we wouldn't really need an MP so much as a kind of master of the buttons. And <laughs> and, and, and every house would have a number of buttons for like yes, no, and uh, you were just constant referendums all the time on everything, like a sort of uh, mega Switzerland. Or something. Yeah, which has uh, worked so well for us recent referendums. Well, this is it, yeah. And I mean, even in Switzerland, they don't do them all the time. They just, it's an easy way out for them to just go, well, it's your fault then. <laughs> Fine, but it's your fault. But there's a point where you just end up doing the equivalent of voting on your own dental procedures. You think, well, just, what's the point in having a dentist then? <laughs> 
Just do it yourself then. Let's just all go mad. What else have you enjoyed this week? I thought that people would not so immediately try and pretend that this wasn't all just about Brexit in the end. So what? Did, how did you think it would play out? I thought it would be Brexity, McBrexit face for at least a week or two. But it's it, it almost hasn't been at all. Immediately people are going, oh, our police in the, our imaginary country that we run will look like this and have this many truncheons. And you go, what? Because Brexit is everything. It's just everything. It's the economy. It's... It, the, everything to do with Brexit affects everything you can do. So there's no point saying food will be cheaper because you don't know. I was trying to Google today Labour's announcement of its immigration policy because that's the thing I'm really waiting on. Because uh, to, to, to today, once again, it's Thursday, <clears throat> they have sort of, sort of made some noises about free movement being a positive thing. Yes, which is already sort of rare, but their the, the whole thing of like, oh, no, 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 we, how are they going to deal with Brexity Labour seats who want massive limits on immigration and their own party conference, which seem to vote for sending an invite to fucking everyone in the world to come live in the UK, which as an immigrant, can I say, is a silly idea <laughs> and no other country in the world works like that. And I know, I know they, they didn't vote for uncontrolled immigration at the conference. They voted for none of these. And of the these, they said we want none of. It was all points-based immigration, all immigration defined by business needs Etc. Etc. Which leaves this a gap of well, what is it then? They're, they're sort of like a magician going well, or like a game show host. Well, it's not the it's not the car. <laughs> what is it? I want to know. I want to know if my how easy will it be for my cousin to move here when he inevitably decides he's sick of being shot at? <laughs> well, you know, come on. And uh, what's the other thing you've enjoyed this week? The contradictions. This was pointed out by Sir John Curtis, I believe, where he said the irony is that. The better the Lib Dems do as a hard Remain party, the more pleased the Tories are. The Tories want the Remain, the hard Remain side to do really well and to remain uh, in in the current sort of um, format. Whereas Labour want the Brexit party, in theory, to do extremely well in hiving off Tories. So So each wants the other's vote split. Each wants the other's vote split, but in such a way that they wish to empower the most extreme version of what they're against. So there's a, it's like the real Faustian pact thing <laughs> happening where, you know, the Labour are sitting there going, we hope those hard Brexiteers make some very convincing arguments. <laughs> and the Tories are sitting there going, God, I hope loads of people see merit in just revoking Article 50 and ignoring the <laughs> referendum. So that kind of uh, perverseness is always very fun to have watch. You, have you seen any actual examples of that yet? There's been a lot of... Uh, 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 the Tories bigging up their shock at the Lib Dems. If I was in the Tories, I'd, I'd, I'd be really going on about how the Lib Dems are the greatest danger to Brexit. And how if, if you were in Labour, you, you'd be going, I can't believe these people who think the only way to get a hard Brexit isn't by listening to Boris Johnson, who talks out of both sides of his mouth, but, exactly. you know, going with Farage so they get this extreme <laughs> version of Brexit yeah. that they want. You know, if they want no deal, they're going to, the, okay. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. You'd have to play it that way, I suppose. Yes. Um, and that's always going to go on, all that kind of double-tongued or whatever you call it. What, 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 what's it called? Speaking yeah, forked through, tongue, forked talking tongue. out of both sides of your mouth. Yeah, 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 yeah. All the dark arts. And have you found anything to be cheerful about this week, personally? Ooh, politically, uh, not really. I mean, I, I, I was saying earlier to someone uh, that I have found things funny, but in a laughing bitterly into whiskey sort of, <laughs> <laughs> that, that kind of funny. Very little of it is uh, 
gleeful chortling. <laughs> <laughs> Pierre, thanks for coming on. Um, you're on tour with Frank Skinner at the moment? On tour with Frank Skinner at the moment. We'll be noodling around Scotland soon. I believe later on over the next month or so, Belfast, Jersey, places like that. And then I'm very pleased to say, in terms of personal news, I will also be supporting Frank Skinner at the Garrick Theatre in the West End. Oh, wow. Um, over five weeks from mid-January to mid-February. So if you want to see me, you'll have to also see Frank Skinner. I'll be hidden there at the start, like a little uh, appetizer. And I just want enough people that I'm genuinely the warm-up as opposed to, a, you know, like the, the equivalent of if the restaurant met, watched and made you eat the bread <laughs> before you were allowed what you actually ordered. <laughs> uh, so that's all good. And then other than that, um, I'll be at the Fringe inevitably in Edinburgh in August under our new overlords whoever they may be Pierre thank you so much thanks very much man Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd Thank you for bearing with me on this week's episode fingers crossed Ed will be back doing his bit from Doncaster on next week's episode thanks to our guests Nick Anstead, Diana Carlin, Graham Fox, Pierre Novelli. Pierre didn't mention, but he does a brilliant podcast with comedian Phil Wang. It's called Bud Pod, and you should give it a listen, with the proviso that it doesn't eat into your reasons to be cheerful listening time. Emma Caution produces our podcast with backup and research from Joel Pierce and Joe Kenyon. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. James Deacon made the eye dents. Ed Seed composed the music, and the artwork wasn't designed by Emily Power or... Alice Lighttowlers. We received an email from Sophie who says, Hi, Ed and Jeff. Firstly, can I say I am a recent convert and fan of your podcast. My lovely sister, Alice Lighttowlers, recommended it to me. She is currently in the middle of writing her thesis, and I think it would be an amazing surprise for her to hear her name being non-credited for your artwork at the end of next week's podcast. Done and done, Sophie. Uh, the artwork, by the way, was designed by Henry Cole. I've been running around like an endless podcaster, and these have been reasons to be cheerful. <laughs> <laughs>